You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. The Trek Files, Season 10, Episode 14, Star Trek The Next Generation, Enterprise Model Plans, February 9th, 1987. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Well, welcome back, Star Trek fans. Hey, you Star Trek historians, you history buffs are going to love today's. And you know what? You tech heads are going to love it, too. Okay, you canonistas, I say that lovingly. Yeah, all of you Trek files spelled with an F. Got a really interesting show today, and we're welcoming a new guest to the show, too. So, uh, whether you're a new listener or you're one of our veterans, you know what to do. Go to our Facebook page. I mean, you've obviously caught the show wherever you can, but you want to make sure, go to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash the Trek Files. That's where we publish the documents every week. They're all still up there. You want to see this week's, um, you want to see this week's letter slash memo? Uh, Take a look at that. Hang on. I'll be right back with this week's special guest. But first, here is an audio sample. Gentlemen, thank you for your interest in Star Trek The Next Generation. Enclosed, you will find our most current set of plans for the new Enterprise model. These plans will give you the overall design of a ship with all of the major details you should need to begin the budgeting process. Please understand that the plans you have received are confidential materials and must be treated as such. Please return them with your budget proposal. You know, I really wonder if they all actually return those those specs. No, here we are. It's the next generation, kids. Um... It's the start of the next generation. Uh, I hope that wasn't too dry because, you know, we're just looking at a request for bids here. How, how businessy could you get? I don't know. This is, this is the realm of visual effects. It's um, returning Star Trek after a long desert, after a hiatus time. And uh, it's an interesting, totally interesting memo. We know how this story comes out. But I'm thinking, who's someone I want to talk about this memo with? You know, none other than... Let's welcome to the show... Look... He's the associate producer and visual effects supervisor of the Motion Picture 4K Director's Edition. He's, you know him, co-host of Inglorious Trexperts and production designer now of the Roddenberry Archives. And need I say, lifelong Trek fan, Darren Doctorman. I am so thrilled to have you on the Trek Files, finally. Well, hi there. It's great to be here. <laughs> well, so... Um, uh, and you have many bailiwicks, and this is right in. Now we're talking 1987 visual effects, yeah, yeah, so we're all still analog, pre-digital, and we're talking about. It's funny um, they'd been doing the motion pictures, but of course, ages since anything on a TV scale. And and and, uh, well, I got the chance to talk to Bob Justman talking about this when I was writing yeah. the Next Gen Companion, and he they were just it was a blue sky they. CGI was on the horizon, but it was so experimental, especially on a TV level. And they didn't know what they could, you know, budget up for on a pilot and then just coast along with, you know, the old library show. So, so what strikes your mind? I mean, he's got the five bidders here. What, what comes to mind when you look at this little, this well, is such a great, a great snapshot in history. The, the interesting thing is that this was sent to, uh, you know, all the heavy hitters. Uh, you know, they had uh, Rob Blaylock at Praxis. 
Uh, Keith Chardle at DreamQuest, Robert Shepard at Apogee, Richard Edlin at Boss Film, and Warren Franklin at ILM. These were the the leaders uh, of the visual effects mm-hmm. industry at the time. So you know they were they were making sure that no matter who they got, uh, they would be able to uh, to provide not only the model of the ship, but uh, as it says in the uh, in the document, uh, the you know basically the stock shots of the ship. Uh, and this was a this was a big deal because uh, this is a this is an expensive thing back then, and they had to be absolutely sure of what they needed and uh, sure of uh, that the company could provide what they needed, uh, certainly for the uh, for at least the pilot of the show. And uh, it's a it's a big order because they don't have much time. They're yeah. already in February. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is only, uh, a few months before the show actually airs. Right. So, well, it's, you know, uh, they, it's, yeah. And they had just, I mean, listeners here, we date all this, these TNG roots days. They had barely got the think tank together, say in October, November, they started hiring Andy Probert and Rick Sternbach and Herman Zimmerman, like December, January. Mm-hmm. So they've actually turned it around fairly quickly, but it's all an accelerated schedule to have a Absolutely. show out. By September. And uh, look, to be honest, uh, none of the people working on the show actually had uh, physical experience in dealing with, quote, modern visual effects. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of them had been out of it for uh, at at least uh, 20 years. And uh, uh, it's uh, it's a big question. Uh, You know, obviously. Talking about Gene and Bob Justman and those. Yeah, but but, obviously Gene uh, Gene had been involved in the motion picture and uh, knew all the uh, sort of Mm -hmm. uh, uh, tripping spots there. Uh, So they had to be extremely careful and uh, sure that who they contracted would be capable uh, (laughs) (laughs) because of, uh, you know, previous experience. but, uh, you know, by this time, the visual effects industry had uh, matured enough that, uh, you know, these various companies uh, had a track record and could provide what they needed, uh, not only for a, a, a television uh, uh, show, but, you know, for uh, motion picture quality visual effects. Yeah. Well, I, it, it's... It feels like a really transitional time, and I don't mean like the 90s when we transitioned mm-hmm. into CG, but it's really becoming a time when, yes, so ILM is a thing, and visual, you know, the Star Wars revolution on big screen, late 70s, by the early 80s, it was starting to to industrialize visual effects mm-hmm. a little bit, mm-hmm. and to the point now we're in 87, it's very scary. They're scared on a lot of fronts trying to restart Absolutely. a Star Trek, and visual effects, and the cost, and even... You know, I'm, and you chime in here. Even more than just the the dollar cost, the time cost. You can you can have all the money in the world, but you can't clone time when Absolutely. you're on a weekly budget. So he's you know, and Bob Justman comes from that. I mean, we all know the original series, the library shots. How many you know, not just the pans of Enterprise left to right, right to left, and all that, but how many times did Sulu turn around and look at you with the sure. screen shot the on same the bridge, time. right? Yes. The li- yeah, the library <laughs> shots, right? That they yeah. tried to use. And he's going into it, and I know Rob Legato, a couple of episodes in, was like, well, this library shots, you people are writing these specific 
episodes right. and you're we, trying to compete in the modern world you can't you can't deal with that you can't that, keep show, showing the same yeah. shot over and over again it's for not different the 60s. things right uh, but to be fair that they they also at some point made the decision to uh composite everything on video mm -hmm. and that is a not only a time saver but certainly a money saver because you don't have to go back and forth with uh, photochemical uh, compositing because that's what really gets you into the weeds. Right. Uh, but uh, you know, there is also a give and take with, uh, with quality as they found out later uh, when they had to remaster them. Um, it's uh, it's a big question as to what can we do for the money and what can, uh, what can be saved in the long run? Yeah. I mean, it, it is a perspective. We, we talk about, yeah, the, they wouldn't have been able to do the show if they hadn't been able to composite. They shot Absolutely. on film and yeah. then put the elements together on video. And, you yep. know, at the time, we were just so thrilled to have Star Trek back and have yeah. it be as big a scope as they were pushing the envelope for. We didn't care. Now we go back and see. And I remember the, the early frame grabs even were like, when you'd look at it in that vein, it was like, why, why are these so hazy? A yeah. chunky, yeah. Why is it so like it's, what was it, shooting through a fog? Did you guys right. have weak chemicals in this, you know? Right. And yeah, you mentioned the remaster. Thank God that they had kept and, and you know, anally and shot archived all those film pieces so yes. that they could just totally, yes, we composited video once but we've still got the film elements we'll just go back to the original yeah. elements and now I mean, still that's a huge job to do but uh, oh, yeah. you know because they had uh, they had started on film there was a, a much mm -hmm. higher version for them to uh, reconstruct later well they shot on film and then they kept them <laughs> yes well they kept them and it was organized and it was organized <laughs> and archivable where they could actually do. otherwise the remastered would have you would have been uprising or, or trying to do something with that video composited there, uh, there would yeah. have been no way. There would, would have, been have been no, no way. Well, it would be like what they're talking about now, or the hurdle, the current hurdle with DS9 and Voyager. Yeah. As far as it's not, it's not that low. I mean, a lot of them were shot, uh, well, and increasingly digital. But it's that same. But no, it's it's we've got the five on here, and of course now in hindsight we know you know, and they're also looking to build the models. They wanted this big yeah. six footer that yeah. would separate right. from the small one. Of course, the big one became kind of an elephant, a dinosaur to deal with as soon as well, they... Well, that's the thing. Uh, you know, when they finally got the, uh, you know, they got the stock footage from ILM and they couldn't afford ILM to do any more shots. Right. Uh, and they brought it down to LA and Image G handled the, uh, the motion control. Yeah, um, just the week-to-week -week episodic. For the week-to-week -week specific yeah. episodic shots. Um, Image G's stage wasn't big enough to get as far away from the model that they needed to. So that is what necessitated building the four-foot model mm -hmm. that Greg Jean did later. Um, so it's, you know... But not till third season. They went right, two seasons, right. Right, mm -hmm. uh, which, is, which is why they subsisted mostly on the stock shots and derivations thereof. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's really a, an amazing job that they did to try and uh, make total use of what they got from ILM and ILM did a bunch of, uh, you know, specific shots for Farpoint. Um, but uh, those elements could later be used and recomposited with other things to, uh, to use in the next two seasons. Yeah. Shooting at the Bandy City wasn't so much <laughs> reusable. Yeah, well, not you at know, all. Yes. Yeah, but the, I mean, like uh, the ILM. So, yeah, we should say ILM wound up winning this bid. Yes. And, you know, they carried that credit the entire seven years because they had the warp effect in the beginning. I mean. Right. 
they use that every week, if nothing else. They never like tra- totally transitioned out of the even the original yeah. shot. Yeah, the whole opening was ILM. Well, I know you know they were Bob Justman. I remember telling me that they looked at the experimental CG, but they um, not only did they worry about the about the appearance or the aliasing or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. 1987, because it was ten years before it began. I mean. Fab Five was was doing you know foundation by the earlier nineties, but or ninety yeah, what, certainly 90s, for, uh, none of, none of these technologies were available at the TV level. Right, they looked at some experimental, and I remember Bob Justman telling me not only was it about the appearance, but they everything was so dicey they didn't want to go in with some company and have it go out of business in two yeah. years. Yeah, you exactly. know they were worried about the stability. So you know ILM had had been around the block and wasn't. The other thing, he, they were holding their breath because they didn't know how much of a, but they were, they were expecting, you know, and some of the, I'm not as familiar, no, Apogee, yes, Boss mm-hmm. Films, Richard mm-hmm. Edlund, I, obviously ILM. I'm not so familiar with Praxis or is or DreamQuest. Uh, Do you know something well, more about Dream, this DreamQuest was, DreamQuest was, uh, was big because they were doing some big shows. They did a bunch of stuff on the Abyss uh, that, okay. starting that year, actually. And uh, Praxis, uh, Rob Blalack uh, did a bunch of stuff in in uh, in tandem with ILM, and I know that they did some uh, stuff on Star Trek II, I believe. So these were people that they had, you know, uh, previous relations with. Yeah. Well, but you'd look at that list, the bidders here, uh, and ILM is definitely the queen of the crop here, right? Well, I mean, you know. Remember, Boss Film did, uh, you know, Ghostbusters and uh, and 2010. They were they were huge. Right. Uh, Apogee was huge. You know, being the uh, uh, the company that was left after uh, uh, Dykstra uh, uh, was separated from uh, ILM. Um, so these are, you know, like I said, these are all big time uh, uh, yeah. leaders in the visual effects industry. I guess I'm thinking more like layman, like who are the people across. You know, the fl- <laughs> people outside the industry directly and ILM had be- because of Star Wars and because of sure. Indiana Jones had sure. in close encounters had become I ILM guess, didn't the public's do close mind. encounters. ILM didn't right. do close encounters. That was Doug Trumbull. Right. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying, though? ILM, I think, in the public's mind was. Sure. Well, they, yeah, they were the most they were the most famous of the right. of the companies. Right. Absolutely. The audiences. But I, I mentioned that because Bob told me that they included them on the list thinking that they were never going to be able to afford them. Right. And it just right. happened that this right at this point, they were in a huge gap yeah. between projects. And it actually, they actually gave them, he said, they gave us a great bid right. to keep their people, you know, yep. to keep their people working. Right. And, uh, and knew that they were a series and they wanted to be associated with those two magic words, Star Trek. Sure. So, and, and they'd had the movie, you know, the movie, uh, uh, pedigree there with, uh, yeah, with absolutely. Uh, several of them when they weren't trying to go cheap on on the st- when the studio wasn't trying to go cheap, but they used ILM for the features. But uh, this was a new critter and it was a whole new era. Yeah, <laughs> and they they were you know they were bidding to be part of it and also to keep their people as many people going. So it was just it was a win win for both sides. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, it's, it's amazing. A fa- it's look. a fascinating yeah. time. It's a fascinating time because so many changes. We're going in the in the uh, visual effects industry. Uh, we were just on the on the just on the brink of going into CG work, uh, mm-hmm. and it was uh, it was really a changing time in uh, in everything. Yeah, 
And it was, you know, just structurally at Paramount. They were gearing up to do this. You know, we talk about selling it as a syndicated series and having, yeah. a mar- you know, ignoring the network cycle and, and setting up their own alliance of stations by customers. Right. But but internally, this is a, the, who sent this out? Peter Lortzen, who wound yeah. up being post-production producer on the series. But at the yeah. time, he's still just the studio's Yeah, the post-production. studio's uh, post-production yeah. guy. He yeah. was technically on on studio work, kind of like Rick Berman was a studio guy before yep. he came to the show. So, yeah, this is right right as everything changed, and um, they they had to, you know, they were it was the conflux of the old and the new on many ways. Um, but anyway, it was a fascinating. Thing. I I couldn't believe I found this letter. It was like a, a real request for bids. It's cool. It's cool. It's the business side, yeah, but still cool. Uh, Darren, thank you for thank you for jumping in. I know you'd be perfect to talk about this with. Hey, I would love to have you back sometime. Of course, I'd love to. And we'll to. find something else. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. The Truck Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. All of our documents and your chance to comment, please do, are available at facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. Now, for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. Yeah, that's me at larrynemachek.com. And you know what? That's where you can also link in for all of our new Trek Files swag and shirts, too, at our Tee Public shop. Trek well, everybody. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.